3. We will be reading from chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word, we ask that your spirit will lead and guide us into what it means to have a righteousness from you. May we put no confidence in the flesh. May we look to nothing to secure ourselves, but may we look to Jesus alone, boasting and glorying in him. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. He uses very strong language. Look out. It's not just a general, generic kind of warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There is strength to Paul's warning. Three times he says it. He puts teeth to it. It has specificity. Where Paul is concerned because there are things that go on in the Christian church that threaten our spiritual vitality. There are things that are dangerous for all of us to imbibe in. Now, we may think that when Paul uses such strong language that perhaps he's warning us about the dangers of syncretism. This is the practice that when we would combine our Christian faith with some other elements of religious belief in our culture. Now, Paul could have warned Christians in the first century about such practices. They would have been a concern to him. But it's not exactly what he goes after here. We might think that Paul would use such strong language when he's attempting to warn the church about the dangers of materialism. That is just getting lost in a life that is sucked into this world where we become about our possessions and things. But that's also not what Paul is telling us to look out for. We may think that Paul would use such strong language, a triple warning to warn us about the dangers of just a life filled with pleasure. 
where we know that we rebel against the law of God and we're not interested in it, that we simply live for ourselves. But that, too, is not what Paul targets when he tells the Philippian church to look out. So what is it? What is Paul after when he says, look out three times? What is scary is that what Paul warns the Philippian church about, he warns them about good, moral, religious people. He warns them about people who believe in God, people who most likely give to charitable things, people who like to raise their children in church, and people who are regular and faithful in church. That Paul's opponents here, who he is concerned about, are Jewish Christians. They are Jewish Christians who are saying that the law is necessary and that for these Gentile converts that were now coming to the church, that what they needed to do was they needed to become Jews, that they needed to follow the law. These Jewish Christians believed that Jesus was who He said He was. They had faith in Him. But they were also adding something to Him. They were saying that the Gentiles had to do something else in order to have right standing with God. And guys, we can struggle to take Paul seriously. Because we oftentimes look at the threats out in the world and we think they're real threats, and we become belligerent and angry about them. But we struggle at times to take the threats inside of our own community as seriously. And so Paul wants to get our attention. He wants to tell us to look out for things inside of our own context that can become massive problems, that can jeopardize everything that's going on inside the gospel. So what exactly is the problem? This is the problem. It's that good, moral, religious people like you, like me, we like to place our confidence in things other than Christ, gaining a sense of superiority against others. Now, as you know, a few weeks ago, I went to the Grand Canyon, and I promise not to just assault you with Grand Canyon illustrations for much longer. But I learned something while I was there. There are many different types of visitors to the Grand Canyon. Many people drive up to the Grand Canyon National Park, they get out of the car, they go to the shops, and then they walk over to the metal rail. Okay? These are the day visitors. They never walk down in the Grand Canyon. They're probably smart. They simply look at it and go, wow, beautiful. Okay? Now, the next level of visitor is the visitor who decides not to just walk up to the rim behind the metal rail, but decides to take a day excursion down into the canyon. Normally, they walk about three miles down to the first rest stop, and then they turn around, and they think this is going to be easy, and so there's signs all over the Grand Canyon National Park that say, down is optional, up is mandatory, okay? Warning people not to do this, that this is not play, Okay? But this is another group, kind of the day people on excursion, just kind of dilly-dallying around the canyon. And then you have another group, who was the group that I joined, that are people who are hiking through the canyon, going from rim to rim, and doing so in an overnight fashion. And so you're taking bite-sized chunks each day, and it's not that heroic, but just walking through the Grand Canyon. On the trail, I encountered another type of 
person who visits the Grand Canyon, though, and they were the extremists. They were the people who go rim to rim in one day, 24 miles. They are normally some kind of, um, of ultra-marathon runners, okay? And there were lots of them. And here they are, streaking through the Grand Canyon at full speed, going 24 miles in a day. And then you had one final class of person in the Grand Canyon, and they were the donkey riders. Okay? They rode the donkey down to the bottom and then rode the donkey back up, perhaps the smartest of everyone. But as you spend time in the Grand Canyon, you begin to realize that each of these groups has a certain sense of privilege about them. And they tend to look down on the other groups. Now, everyone rejects the donkey riders, okay? Everyone has equal disdain for them. Because the donkeys don't stop for anybody. When you see them, I mean, these people are doing the least work, and they get the right of way. It still doesn't make sense to me. But when they come down the trail, you have to simply let the mules pass. But then you have the day hikers, and they are looked down on as well. And then you have the through hikers who look down on the day hikers. And then you have the extremists who think that they just simply own the Grand Canyon because they're going through in a day. And friends, this is the trick with human communities, is that we love this stuff. We love to create distinctions among ourselves. We're not content to say we're simply all here enjoying the Grand Canyon and the Great Vista. In whatever fashion we happen to do that, we're creating distinctions among ourselves, and we love to look down on other people arrogantly. We love to gain a certain sense of superiority around certain achievements and certain things of, related to our performance. And that is precisely what's happening here in Philippi. And so Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These were the Jewish Christians who were saying circumcision was necessary. This is what he's warning about when he says those who mutilate the flesh. The irony was is that these Jewish Christians uh, typically used the word dogs to refer to the Gentiles. And who does Paul say the dogs are? Those who add to the gospel. And so it's a strong warning. And then he says, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory, or you could say boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so Paul has a strong word for those who would add to Jesus. He says they are dogs. He calls them mutilators. And so obviously he's concerned by threats to the gospel that happen inside of the Christian church. And so perhaps the biggest question for us to ask on a practical level is what are those places that good, moral, religious people who believe in Jesus, like us, where are we prone to put our confidence? How can we make this same mistake? And for some of us, what we put our confidence in is we put our confidence in our religious pedigree. Look what Paul says about himself. He says, look, I have every reason to be confident. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. These were simply Paul's privileges that he was born into. 
It gave him a religious pedigree. It set him apart as someone who would be respected. And friends, so often we have certain religious pedigrees that we esteem, and we esteem them because they give us a certain status, and they give us a certain social community, and we can become important inside of that community. We can look down on the donkey riders. We can look down on the people who are spending the night going through the Grand Canyon. We can uh, look at them and cast shame on them, believing ourselves superior. And this pedigree becomes a trap. Because privilege is not our fault, but when privilege becomes a source of confidence, something that we invest our sense of confidence and right standing in front of God inside of, then it becomes an enormous burden. It becomes a tremendous problem. And so Paul uses himself as an example and says, look, if anyone should have confidence, I should. And it's the religious pedigree that can get us in trouble. Now another source of problems for us, place that we're prone to put our confidence, is in our religious achievement or religious effectiveness. Look what Paul says in verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And here Paul shifts from his privileges to his performance. And he finds himself here to be excellent at what he had given himself to as a Pharisee. That he had given himself all the way to the point where he would persecute those who were polluting the synagogue with this belief in Jesus. And we know the story about Paul's life from Acts chapter 9. He gave himself to persecuting the church. That in the law, he was blameless. That is, he followed its prescriptions. It means that he used the temple means for forgiveness of sins. It means that he took seriously the food laws and the circumcision request. Paul was an ardent Jew. He was given to this. And friends, in our own ways, we can begin to create tiers of Christians based on achievement and performance and success. We like to do these things. Now, one other way that we are prone to put our confidence in the wrong place, we can put our confidence in a theological system. We can find confidence in having our beliefs all right and lined up in a system that makes logical sense to be well-ordered, and we can look down on other Christians who don't share those views. Without dismissing the importance of theology, hear me say that when theology becomes your source of confidence, your theology has not guided you to the right place. Christ is to be the root and ground of our confidence, not our theological correctness. A few years ago, I was in my hometown and a friend called me who was visiting, and he was asking for directions. He said, I'm trying to get to this location. How do I get there? And I realized at that point, just in that moment, as he asked me the question, that the only thing I could tell him was, well, you know, you need to go to McDonald's and hang a right, and then there's this little trick turn across the left, and I didn't know the name of any of the streets or roads. I could tell him exactly how to get there but I didn't know the way at all. And yet now I arrive in Jacksonville and I've been studying Google Maps because you guys have a very complicated city. 
It's big and there's vast roadways to learn and there's ways to get around and I'm still learning them. And yet my knowledge of Jacksonville is completely different from in my hometown. All I know is street names and I know north and south. I know directions. It's like a textbook. And friends, that is like theological knowledge. It's like knowing the map. But the map knowledge is good, it's helpful, it orients you, but it is to take you into this knowledge of a place. That our knowledge of God is to be like knowing your hometown. It's knowing your way around, what it is to relate to it, what its rhythms are, who God is. Not knowing about Him, but actually relating to Him on this personal level. And so we have to be careful that our theological systems do not become our source of confidence, that our confidence is found in Christ. Now, one final way that we are prone to put our confidence in the wrong place is that we see all the games that people play. We see the games that some people put their confidence in their religious pedigree, some people put it in their religious achievements, and some people put it in their theological knowledge. And so we decide that we're above that game and we really are better than all those people who don't really understand and get grace. And so we cynically sit back and chide and become better than the church. This too is a wrong form of boasting. This attitude doesn't glory in Christ either. It's like we have reversed somehow the parable of the publican. You know this from the Gospels where Jesus tells the story about a man who is a tax collector who enters the temple and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then a Pharisee enters the temple and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that great sinner. And so quickly, though, publicans become Pharisees and say, thank God I'm not like that self-righteous prig. All of these are misinformed ways of boasting. They're ways that we miss the grace of God. And they're all ways that become, they're very native to our hearts because we love to create distinctions. We love to create divisions among ourselves rather than simply resting in the righteousness that comes from God in Jesus Christ. So what has to happen to us then? If we are prone to boast in the wrong things, what has to happen to us if we are to learn to boast in Christ. We discover the answer in verse 8 and 9. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Do you see what Paul is saying? That what has to happen to us is that we must allow God to reorient our values, teaching us what has surpassing worth and what doesn't. That Paul is saying that he has discovered that in the righteousness that God has made available in Jesus, that there's surpassing worth in knowing Christ and being found in Him. That this is the object of our desires and should be the object of our affections. And we have to allow that object to displace our lesser loves, the things that often attract us. And so Paul sees that there's surpassing worth in knowing Jesus. 
And so this reorientation must go on in the heart where our affections become attached to this. That Jesus just isn't a religious belief for us, but it is the most important thing. That the gift He gives us is unattainable, that it can't be accessed or had in any other way. And Paul wants to explain why though. He's going to drive into why it is that this should be an object of surpassing worth to us. And so he creates a contrast in verse 9 that we not be, that would be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so he creates a contrast between two things. A righteousness of our own or a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Now there's a large debate here in this passage about these words, faith in Christ. There are many ways to translate it, and the two prominent ones are to say that this is faith in Christ, or you can translate it the faithfulness of Christ. Okay? And there's different places in the New Testament where you'll find the ESV giving it the different translations. I think it's proper to read this as, faithful, as the faithfulness of Christ because Paul is contrasting a righteousness of my, of my own or a righteousness that comes through Jesus. That that's the basic contrast. We have that righteousness. It depends on faith as he goes on to explain and say. We access it through our faith in this Christ. But this is what Paul's laying out. That we have a righteousness that comes through our own achievement and effort. The things that we do, our religious pedigrees and privileges, all the things that we can give ourselves to, we can think that we have right standing with God through that, or we can have right standing with God through Jesus. And this is what he's contending for. And he says that everything else that he had in his life all of that religious pedigree, all of that religious accomplishment, he says that it's worth nothing. In verse 8, he says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The word for rubbish is a strong one. It refers to excrement. He says that it's nothing. It's empty. He is driving us to have one source of confidence in front of God. That in all of our sins, that in all of our faults and failures, we have one place to hide, one place to draw our confidence. And he's pointing us to the great fact, though, that this is the secure place for us. That it has surpassing worth for this great reason. Blaise Pascal, in his famous book, The Pensees, takes us into this. He says this, he says, with some regarding nature as corrupt, others regard it as, irre, uh, as unfixable. They have been unable to avoid either pride or despair, the twin sources of all vice. Now follow what he's saying. He says, some people believe that nature is so corrupt that there's no fix for it. And some people are so into human excellency and virtue that they don't believe there's a problem. He says, either way, you end up in a vice. If you believe that nature is just, we just need to give up because we're so corrupt, 
you end up in despair, that there's no hope. Or if you believe that human nature is just so good and you're filled with virtue, you end up in pride. The thing is, is that a little life experience, if you're proud, it will lead you to a very uneven life where you seesaw back and forth between pride and despair. That the despairing will find something to hope in, to lift themselves up, and then they'll have another cataclysmic experience and ride back down. And this is the nature of human experience. Just when you think you're at the top of the rung, just when you think you're the best ultramarathon or through the Grand Canyon, someone will beat you. Just when I was feeling proud of my accomplishment of hiking through the Grand Canyon, thinking I was tough, up comes a whole group of people who just finished it in one day. There's always something to better you. And all the places that we would seek to find confidence for our status, they can quickly erode. And Paul is pointing out the fact That surpassing worth is found in this righteousness that comes from God. This free gift. Because it's not rooted and grounded in you. Otherwise, we're just left to this pride and despair, oscillating back and forth, never having secure foundation and sound ground to stand on. And he's pointing us to a foundation that doesn't rock, it doesn't shake, it doesn't move. It's sturdy. It's been accomplished in Christ. We have it through faith in this Christ. A righteousness from God that covers our sins, that removes them. And it leads to one fruit, though. That when we recognize all of this, when we take it in, when we see that the church is a place of danger, just like the outside world, that we have to be careful to have our confidence, and to boast in Christ alone. The fruit that emerges from this is simply joy, that there's freedom. Look back at verse 1, what he says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It's safe for me to tell you over and over and over to rejoice. This is the life that He is drawing us into, is a life of thanksgiving and gladness. It is the timber of Psalm 98 to give thanks to God, to call to all of creation to give thanks to God because salvation has arrived, that the great day of salvation has broken into the world in Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the fruit of the gospel, is rejoicing in Christ, finding our confidence in Him, glorying Him, knowing that we've been freed from the court of human opinion, that we've been freed from God's judgment, and we're free from the petty world of social discrimination where we create divisions amongst ourselves. That we're freed from that whole way of the flesh And that we've been freed into a new life in front of God and with one another. This is what Paul is welcoming the church into. This is the reality that God is even establishing amongst us. That our boast in Jesus takes away all other forms of boasting. It means that they're nothing. They're empty. 
and that we then can freely accept one another, living together with all of our diversity. Because remember, where did this church in Philippi start? started with a suicidal Roman soldier, a wealthy merchant woman named Lydia, and a demon-possessed slave girl. What were they to have in common? That they were found in Christ Jesus. And that community then was gathered together for praise. They were not to have divisions amongst themselves because their unity came through their boasting in Christ. And so let's glory in Him. Let's find our confidence in the righteousness that's freely ours and allow there to be no other divisions, no other sources of fleshly trust. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that our hearts are sick and that so often we desire to create divisions amongst ourselves based on achievement and a performance type standards that we love to look down at others from a superior perch and to judge them forgive us for that help us to apply what it means to be righteous before you to have our sins forgiven and to relate to one another on that basis as well lord free us from the court of human opinion Free us from the court of your judgment as well. Help us to experience all that is ours in Christ. And free us to live to one, uh, together with one another, graciously receiving each other as you have received us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.